wealthy widow, a servant girl, and a newly appointed bishop. Three unlikely participants in a tragic event that would make history. Ireland's first trial and execution for witchcraft. But this trial was about more than magic. Until the 12th century, the principalities of Ireland had been self-governing. That all changed when King Henry II of England and his Norman lords invaded the island in the 1170s, dividing it into two spheres, one ruled by the Anglo-Norman nobility and the other by Irish lords. By the 14th century, Anglo-Norman rule had swept like a wave over the island, and two women, Alice Kittler and Petronilla de Meath, would find themselves caught in the tide. Alice Kittler was born in County Kilkenny, Ireland, in or around 1263, as the only child of a family of Flemish merchants. Her parents were well off, at least by 13th century standards, and when her father died in 1280, Alice inherited all businesses and properties that had belonged to him, and married a man from an equally wealthy family. However, Alice's marital life never would run smooth. Records reveal that Alice had four husbands in all, her first being a man named William Outlaw, whom she married around the age of 18. They had a son, also named William, who would grow to become mayor of Kilkenny. Tragically, her husband died just a few years into their marriage, leaving Alice a young widow. But with her wealth and status, Alice soon remarried. This time, she married a moneylender from Callan by the name of Adam Leblund. However, from the outset of their marriage, Alice and Adam struggled with accusations that the two had plotted against and murdered Alice's first husband, William Outlaw. It's probable that these rumors circulated as a result of the sheer wealth that Adam and Alice controlled, not to mention the fact that Adam was a moneylender and therefore bound to have angry debtors talking behind his back. Despite an accusation of witchcraft leveled against her, Alice retained her freedom and her wealth. Soon after, Adam, known by many to be a heavy drinker, also died. Before he did, he signed over all his wealth to Alice. Nor did Alice's luck in love improve with her third marriage, this time to Richard Laval, a wealthy landowner with a son from a prior marriage. When he, too, died a few years later, Richard's son attempted to keep the entire estate, including the widow's dower, the portion of the estate legally owed to Alice. She sued and won. But it was Alice's fourth ill-fated marriage that brought real trouble. The wealthy, now middle-aged widow married Sir John Lepuer. When Sir John fell ill in 1324, he told his children that he suspected he was being poisoned. After his death, when Sir John's children realized that he had willed a large portion of his estate to Alice, they met with Alice's other stepchildren and compared notes. The heirs of Alice's late husbands decided that she must have murdered them for their estates, collecting wealth for herself and William. 
Unable to find any physical evidence of poisoning in Sir John's case, they devised a new explanation. Sorcery. The use of harmful magic had existed on the books as a crime for some time. But up until this point, it had never been taken seriously as a charge by Irish authorities. But many things were changing in the 14th century, and Alice was at the mercy of the wrong man. In the first decade of the 14th century, Pope Boniface VIII found himself at odds with the King of France, Philip IV. Philip was gearing up for war and needed the extra revenue that taxing French churchmen could give him. Philip began openly taxing members of the clergy in his kingdom, diverting revenue that would otherwise go to the Pope's coffers. Boniface released a series of papal declarations of the Church's supremacy, ultimately excommunicating Philip. One of Philip's captains then traveled to Italy, abducted the Pope while he was traveling, and beat him so severely that, even though his captors eventually released him, he never recovered his wits and died a few days later. When it came time to elect a successor, Philip's efforts to pressure the College of Cardinals ultimately failed to elect a Frenchman, instead electing Pope Benedict XI. But when Benedict died just a few months into his reign, Philip and the French cardinals pressed their advantage and elected the French Pope Clement V. Pope Clement moved the papal court from Rome to the southern French city of Avignon, a move that would cement French control over the papacy for the next 70 years. He also quickly undid the effects of Boniface VIII's declarations, essentially giving the King of France full control of church revenues. It was also under Clement V that, on Friday the 13th, in October of 1307, King Philip ordered hundreds of Knights Templar in France arrested and tried for usury, credit inflation, fraud, heresy, sodomy, immorality, and various other abuses. Since the days of their inception after the First Crusade, the Knights Templar had accumulated a vast amount of wealth, making them a tempting target for Philip's greed. On Philip's orders, Pope Clement held the Council of Vienne in 1311, but ecclesiastical authorities refused to convict the Templars of heresy. Despite this, the Pope issued the papal decree Vox in Excelso, which formally abolished the Order of the Templars, officially granting their estates to another crusading order, the Hospitallers of St. John. But Philip seized the Templars' wealth instead and held their estates until his death in 1314. Pope Clement V's successors would have little choice but to continue the tradition of submitting the Church to secular power well into the 14th century, causing schism and tensions at all levels of the Church throughout Europe. It was Clement V's immediate successor, Pope John XXII, the longest reigning of the Avignon popes, who gave Richard de la Dred the office of Bishop of Ossory with its episcopal seat in Kilkenny, Ireland. 
An English Franciscan friar, Richard saw himself in his new position as the defender of the church's power in its struggles with secular authorities. His Irish parishioners would see him as a Norman English overlord sent to interfere in Irish politics. Richard believed that there was one primary threat that could undermine the authority of church and crown just enough to send them both toppling. Heresy. Concerns about the rise of heretical beliefs had been growing steadily throughout the 12th and 13th centuries. But the crises of the 14th century, coupled with the increasing calls to reform the church and its doctrines, led church authorities to crack down on beliefs and practices that deviated from accepted doctrine, or questioned the sanctity and authority of the clergy. As his reign progressed, Pope John XXII became increasingly afraid that he was being attacked by sorcery and supported any and all efforts to seek out and eliminate those who resorted to harmful magic. Before charges were brought against her, Bishop Ladred must have heard of Dame Alice. She was one of the wealthiest women in his diocese, and even though he was a recent arrival, he had probably heard the rumors circulating about her husbands and their fates. When her late husband's children brought charges of sorcery against her and several associates, Richard saw his chance at last to cleanse his diocese of heresy. When two powerful men championed Alice's defense, Chancellor Roger Outlaw, brother of Alice's first husband and prior of the local chapter of the Hospitallers, and the Seneschal of Kilkenny, Arnold Lepuere, kinsman to Alice's fourth husband, the bishop saw his chance to defend the church against both heresy and the corruption of powerful noblemen. The dispute between the great men reached a boiling point when one of Arnold's kinsmen stopped the bishop in the street and arrested him, saying, My Lord Bishop, on behalf of my Lord Arnold, I tell and order that you not progress any further along this road, but at once return and go with us with all your goods and chattels to the prison at Kilkenny Castle without delay. The bishop, after a short time in prison, addressed his captors. Son, you had better know that since the time of the foundation of the Church of God in Ireland, archbishops and bishops are subject to God, to our Lord the Pope, and in earthly matters to the King of England, whereas they are in no way obligated to answer to the courts of counts or barons, to whom they are spiritual superiors and earthly equals. Far be it from a bishop, nurtured, trained, promoted, and sent to these parts under the wings of the Holy Apostolic See to show himself to be such a pernicious example to other earthly leaders so that they might drag bishops and other prelates of the church with bindings and writs into their secular courts. On the contrary, we rather wish to submit ourselves to imprisonment all the more, or even to death if necessary before the church, the bride of God, should be subject to secular bondage.
For Bishop Ledred, this case was about more than one woman's alleged heresy. For him, this was about defending the jurisdictional privileges of the Church against the overweening power of secular authorities. For Arnold Lapuer, however, Ledred's pursual of this case against prominent Irish subjects was a symptom of a much larger problem, increasing English intervention in Irish affairs. Though Ledred and Lapuer resolved their differences publicly, tensions between England and Ireland and between church and state would remain. After the bishop's release, he continued to press his case against Alice and her associates. Among those accused alongside Alice were her son, William, and two servants, Basil, or possibly Basilia, and Petronilla de Meath. According to a later chronicler, at some point during the course of the trial, the lady and Basil fled, and William Outlaw was held nine weeks in strict durance. Petronilla would not be so lucky. According to Bishop Ledred's account of the trial, the accusations brought against Alice and her alleged accomplices included the following. That they were denying Christ and the Church. That they cut up living animals and scattered the pieces at crossroads as offerings to a demon called Robin, the son of Art, in return for his help. That they stole the keys of the Church and held meetings there at night that in the skull of a robber they placed the intestines and internal organs of cocks, worms, nails cut from dead bodies, and pieces of clothing from boys who died unbaptized, that from this brew they made potions to incite people to love, hate, kill, and afflict Christians, that Alice herself had a certain demon as incubus by whom she permitted herself to be known carnally, and from whom she received her wealth and that Alice had used her sorcery to murder some of her husbands and to infatuate others, with the result that they gave all of their possessions to her and her son. Alice managed to escape, almost certainly with Roger Outlaw's help, and fled to Dublin where she began her own proceedings against the bishop. But her 24-year-old servant, Petronilla, was still in custody. Bishop Ledred took all his frustrations out on Petronilla, ordering her tortured without mercy until she confessed to witchcraft. According to church law, a confession obtained via torture was inadmissible unless it was repeated when the accused was no longer under duress. This does not appear to have been the case with Petronilla. Bishop Ledred's account of the trial contains no record of Petronilla being questioned before she was tortured nor is there any record of a repeated confession afterward. English common law didn't allow for the use of torture at all, and it's quite possible that this is the first, perhaps the only, use of torture by religious authorities to elicit a confession in medieval Ireland. After being whipped repeatedly, Petronilla confessed to the charges against her and her mistress, agreeing to whatever Bishop Ledred's imagination could conjure. According to the bishop's account, she confessed that Alice often made a sentence of excommunication against her own husband. And though Petronilla was indeed herself an adept in this accursed art of theirs, she said she was nothing in comparison with her mistress, from whom she had learned all these things and many more. And indeed, 
In all the realm of the King of England, there was none more skilled or equal to her in this art. In the end, Petronilla confessed that Alice slept with a demon, consulted with devils, and made potions to bewitch others, and that the two of them applied a magical ointment to a wooden staff that let both women fly. A 14th century chronicler, John Clynn, recorded Petronilla's condemnation and punishment, writing, Petronilla de Meath was condemned for sorcery, lot-taking, and offering sacrifices to demons, consigned to the flames and burned. Moreover, before her even in olden days, it was neither seen nor heard of that anyone suffered the death penalty for heresy in Ireland. As for Arnold Lapuer, Bishop Ladred also accused him of heresy and had him excommunicated and imprisoned in Dublin Castle. Fortunately, this put him under the partial jurisdiction of Roger Outlaw, who had been named Justice of Ireland in 1328. Roger treated Arnold with as much sympathy and kindness as he could, further angering the bishop, who then brought charges of heresy against Roger. Roger demanded these charges be lifted and summoned a privy council consisting of members of the nobility, bishops, abbots, priors, the mayors of Dublin, Cork, Limerick, and Waterford, sheriffs, seneschals, knights, and prominent citizens of Dublin to adjudicate the case. In his defense, Roger argued that the bishop's proceedings against Arnold Lapuer had been partial and unjust and therefore Roger was merely serving justice in opposing him. Ultimately, the Privy Council acquitted Roger, but Arnold died in prison that same year before the case was fully resolved. Soon after Roger's acquittal, the Archbishop of Dublin accused Bishop Ladred of heresy. The bishop, taking a page from Dame Alice's book, fled in order to make an appeal to the Pope. A letter from King Edward III of England addressed to Pope John XXII and the College of Cardinals states that they should beware of Ladred, since, like a felon, he had fled the country without permission when he ought to have stood trial. In 1331, the king again wrote to the Pope, informing him that the bishop had refused to cooperate with the Crown's efforts to investigate the charges of heresy. Bishop Ladred would spend the next decade in exile. In 1924, 600 years after Alice Kittler's trial, the Irish poet William Butler Yeats would commemorate her in his poem 1919. In it, Yeats struggles to comprehend the sheer destructive impulses of humanity. He ends the poem with Alice Kittler. But now wind drops, dust settles thereupon, there lurches past his great eyes without thought, under the shadow of stupid straw-pale locks, that insolent fiend Robert Artisan, 
to whom the lovelorn Lady Kittler brought bronzed peacock feathers, red combs of her cocks. The trial of Alice Kittler and the subsequent execution of Petronilla de Meath probably mark several firsts in medieval Irish history. It appears to have been the first time a religious court applied torture to elicit a confession, possibly the first time Irish authorities executed a woman for sorcery by burning at the stake, and the first time that we see a story that will become all too familiar of a conspiracy of witches who consort with demons and fly through the night on broomsticks. If Alice hadn't married four times, if she hadn't sued her late husband's heirs for her portion of their estates, if she hadn't been quite so wealthy, would the bishop still have been willing to try her for heresy and witchcraft? Perhaps not. But the trial of Alice Kittler is about so much more than sorcery. By the 14th century, most of Ireland was an English colony, with all the cultural and political tension that entails. Couple that with an English Bishop of Ossory, a foreigner, a newcomer, who saw it as his duty to purge his diocese of all threats to the authority of the Church and of the English crown, and you have a recipe for fear, faction, and vendetta. While Alice Kittler and Petronilla de Meath suffered the consequences of these conflicts, they were not necessarily the intended targets. The real war was between Bishop Ledred on the one side and Roger Outlaw and Arnold Lepuer on the other. English against Irish, church against state. While Petronilla de Meath may have been the victim of Bishop Ledred's anger and frustration, in truth, she was more than that. She was a casualty of war. In the late 1970s, American artist Judy Chicago unveiled an installment called The Dinner Party, which consists of a massive triangular banquet table with 39 place settings, each dedicated to a woman of particular historical significance. Marking a place for the first in a long line of women to be executed for witchcraft, one of those settings is for Petronilla de Meath. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and help spread the word by rating and reviewing Enchanted on Apple Podcasts. This week's episode was produced by Thomas Ignatius and Corinne Wieben with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. To learn more about the show or to become a supporter, please visit EnchantedPodcast.net. 
I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.